Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a very special presentation by Walter Murch, followed by a conversation hosted by Michael Lerner. This is part three of our three-part series titled Bode's Law Redux. New evidence confirms 18th century conjecture on orbital harmonies. Walter, thank you so much for this extraordinary presentation. Um, We had a chance to talk a little bit about this uh, in some of our previous conversations, and I think the starting place is, um, what does this tell us about the nature of uh, the universe? What, What are some of the implications or hypotheses that have come to you as you've reflected on that? Um, it, it, uh, it's a very provocative question. It, it's a little outside this topic, which is really concerning uh, orbital systems. Uh, to, to make a leap to talk about the universe from this is a leap. I'm, I'm willing to make it. Uh, but it's... Uh, there is a big debate in uh, cosmology about uh, the nature of the organization of our particular universe, which seems to be based on very what they what physicists call very finely tuned parameters, numbers that are accurate down to 120 decimal places. And if the 121st decimal place was different, we would all explode. Um, and this has only recently been discovered, recently meaning in the last generation or so. And it is, uh, causes a lot of head-scratching uh, because it, on the one hand, feeds right into uh, 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 creationism, that some intelligence wrote that number in some golden book somewhere down to 121 decimal points and is, we thank you very much because we wouldn't be here otherwise. Uh, but what it also provokes is this idea of the multiverse, which is that our universe is a pocket, uh, to, for want of a better word, within a much larger, infinitely large, complex system of systems. And many of those systems, the parameters are very different, and they, from our point of view, are sterile universes, uh, incapable of organizing matter in any way that we would recognize. It could be that there are some universes that are even more organized than ours, and if people from that universe could see us, they would say, oh, the poor dears, how do they possibly get along without the X factor, whatever it is, that uh, is badly tuned in our system? Maybe the moral dimension is something we're struggling with uh, on that level, and they say, well, if only you had this, you wouldn't have these problems, but that's our lot to carry. Uh, So, uh, I guess the point is that uh, what we're trying to stab at here, both myself in a very amateur way over a couple of decades, and now uh, astronomers like uh, Leinweaver and Bovaird, is is there a, an underlying um, something that causes these to be more organized than they should be? Uh, one of the headlines, uh, when this hit the news, in some of the astronomical papers, it was it, the headline was unexpectedly organized systems, because Newtonian physics, and even the Einsteinian extension of Newtonian, doesn't predict this. So, uh, and that 
historically has been one of the big sticks that Bode has been beaten up with, which is there's no reason that should be here. There's no reason, you know. <laughs> and uh, what now we're, we're getting into is this idea of data. Uh, the, the dilemma of uh, people who study planetary science for many years, meaning from ancient history on, is that it was like being a botanist with only one flower to study, the flower being our system. And for many years, we didn't know about Jupiter and its moons, so that was a discovery only re relatively recently. And if you only have a little bit of data, there's only so much you can say, and what, what that paradoxically leads to is lots of wild speculation based on the paucity of data. So if there was only roses in the world and they were the only flowers, we could postulate all kinds of crazy things about roses. But as soon as there are daisies and orchids, now we go, oh, look. They look very different, but those petals, which look one way in a daisy, are the same as the petals of a rose and of the orchid and stamens and pistils and all of the other paraphernalia of botany, suddenly we see that there is kind of an ur flower in, a, in some sort of platonic ideal that, a, that forms in different shapes in reality, do we think, to evolutionary pressure. So planetary systems may have something in common with this, and the amount of data we're now getting uh, can help us to weed our way through that garden. The organizing principle that you referred to is sometimes called the anthropic principle, correct? Meaning that the universe appears to have been designed precisely to support life. Right. And this has driven Stephen Hawking and many other people crazy because they can't imagine, in effect, that the universe is designed to support life. And therefore, the multiverse is an effort to say, oh, don't worry, it's just a random universe we, we got lucky. Billions. We got lucky. Right. Nothing special about this. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas if you look at everything we can see in the universe we know, it seems perfectly designed to support life. Right. Now, this you is, it's a version of the old, you know, the blind watchmaker concept. Exactly. That how did that watch come to be? Right. Uh, somebody must have designed it. And uh, we thought for many years in the 19th and early 20th century that we're, we were free of that argument. But the amount of detail we now get about organization of atoms at their basic and the, the cosmological constant, it's like it's come back with a vengeance, and now, it's produced these other versions. You introduced me to something I didn't know a lot about. I knew about what are called the strong and the weak anthropic principles, but you introduced me to four or five different anthropic principles. Right. Could you talk a little about how you understand that? Uh, yeah, the, the most provocative of them is something called the uh, participatory anthropic principle, which is due to this uh, wonderful physicist, John Wheeler, who was a student of Niels Bohr and the man who coined the word black hole. And he's known, he, he died only a few years ago at a very advanced age. Uh, he taught at Princeton and uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, he was known for Wheelerisms, which were uh, fantastic uh, conceptual nets, sometimes seemingly absurd, that he would throw over the universe and say, what about this? And one of them is this concept, but it's something he really believed in, which was that uh, by observing something, consciousness participates in its creation in some way. 
maybe materially, uh, or maybe in some aspect that we're not too sure about. And even stranger, it can go forwards and backwards in time. So that by becoming aware of the Big Bang, in a sense, we create the Big Bang. It's, it's very hard to wrap your mind around this. Uh, just like any time you get into time travel, it's, it creates paradoxes. Uh, but he was uh, a firm believer in this. And basically what it is, is the extension of something that we know is true uh, uh, in, at the tiniest level in quantum uh, theory. But what he does is extend that into the macroscopic realm. And then there's also something called the final anthropic principle, which is a uh, uh, favorite theory of John Barrow, who's a physicist. Uh, and I, I don't quite understand the distinction between it and the strong anthropic, but it means, I think, that just as, uh, just as molecular structure was, in a, some sense, virtually contained within the quark soup at the beginning, if, if you were somehow present at the beginning of the universe and all you saw was a, a fusion of quarks, not even any protons yet, quarks and electrons, uh, you would say, this looks hopeless. But somehow, due to the laws of nature, that froze and coalesced into material structure so that molecular substances like water and air and fire and uh, rock uh, emerged out of this soup, uh, inevitably, we believe. And he believes that consciousness inevitably will emerge out of the universe. So that's the, I, I think that's, as I understand it, what he means by final. That consciousness is not an accidental epiphenomenon uh, that allows us to conquer nature. And it's good for us, not so good for people or animals that are we eat. Uh, but we have great consciousness. and. Uh, a point of view about consciousness is that it's a, uh, it's a poison pill, sort of like the antlers of the Irish elk, which got bigger and bigger and bigger until, and more sexually attractive to lady elk. Hey, that guy's got a real big rack. Uh, but what happened is they got so big that the elk could no longer move between the trees in the forest, and so they went extinct. So it's arguable that consciousness might be leading us into some kind of trap, uh, but Barrow does not believe that. He believes that uh, we may go extinct through our own carelessness, but that in the universe at large, consciousness will emerge just the way molecular structure emerged. Mm -hmm. When I listen, I'm sure when others listen to this, uh, quite aside from the regularity of this, the uh, the novel observation that you made about Bode's Law, that it had this musical uh, uh, corollary, the music touches us at a very deep level. And there's a sense of astonishment and of beauty uh, and of rightness. You know, that's uh, what definitely attracted me to it. Right. You know, that's why I fell down that rabbit right. hole. Right. Yeah. And, and, if we trust that sense of beauty and rightness of it, uh, that uh, reinforces for me uh, the sense that consciousness is not a random epiphenomenon of the evolution of the universe, but rather 
the orderliness of this, the return of the concept of the music of the spheres from, you know, Pythagoras and the very early back into uh, true scientific plausibility in our time. It's an extraordinary experience. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to ask you, you are an enormously prolific filmmaker and editor, uh, and at the same time you've done uh, this uh, amazing uh, in-depth research on Bode's Law. Uh, can you tell us, I read somewhere uh, that you, um, you do your editing standing up. Uh, you say like a surgeon or a short order cook. Uh, uh, but your writing you do lying down. I don't know if this is actually true or not. but it, right. it's in, uh, So wh where are you when you do your thinking about both? Uh, somewhere in between. <laughs> uh, the lying down part is when you're creating uh, you know, a story out of nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and standing is your sort of, the metaphor would be, again, with cooking or with conducting, where you are imposing order on something that's already sort of been established. Uh, this is sort of in between, and so I usually sit to do it. And do you think about this sort of all the time or episodically? Episodically, yeah. Yeah, it's a, sometimes it's overwhelming, you mm -hmm. know, and I can't, it just, it's too much. Mm -hmm. And here's a, a difficult question, but when you think about this stuff, um, can you in any way describe what the experience is like of thinking about Bode's Law and this influx? I mean, what... What form of awareness are you in? Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I do some very low-level computer programming mm -hmm. uh, with databases and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's similar uh, in the sense that once I get an idea for a program, mm -hmm. it's like that completely says, it, it, you know, it's, it's like a virus that has taken over my thinking. Mm -hmm. You must complete me. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> do it, do it, and I just okay. I have to do it, and, phew, and hopefully I I do. This is similar in that sense, in that, uh, and it's combined with. You know, I, I took it in in. Oh, this is interesting, uh, and then I took another step, and I got a little deeper into the water, mm -hmm. a little deeper, and pretty soon it was. I, I kept. Being, I, I expected it to fall apart at some point, and it kept not falling apart. It kept kind of luring me deeper and deeper in. Yes, this is true, and now this is true, and so it. Uh, that's that's purely on an emotional mm -hmm. uh, level. Mm -hmm. When we talked about uh, before we did the conversation here, what does this tell us? Um, you mentioned the possibility that uh, dark matter might play a role. In other words, given that any orbit is possible, and yet it turns out that for reasons that have nothing to do with Newtonian or Einsteinian uh, theory, uh, there are these apparent grooves that uh, the planets uh, fall into. Um, what, are, what are some of the leading hypotheses you have about why that? Yeah, I mean, this is pure speculation, yeah. uh, but... The, the, the image, again, it, it, because of my uh, background in sound and, and music and acoustics, uh, there are things called standing waves. This, this room has a, if you, if you played the right note at the right frequency, which happened to correspond 
the wavelength of that sound would correspond to the distance between the walls. You could get standing waves of sound in this room, mm -hmm. uh, which are just waves that, rather than moving, just kind of hover there. Mm -hmm. And that's what this intuitively reminds me of, mm -hmm. that these, this, lands, this undulating landscape is some kind of standing wave phenomenon. But as soon as you say that, you have to wonder, well, standing waves acoustically are standing waves in air. What are these waving in? Uh, and where are the walls of the room? Yeah. Uh, it, in one sense, the, one of the walls is that concept of the beta point. Mm -hmm. Where do these begin? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that stable orbits begin at a certain point mm -hmm. and then go outward. And uh, there's, there's another area of speculation that I didn't get into, uh, which is another way to determine beta by comparing the uh, angular momentum of the star with the angular momentum of all of the planets. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there are some provocation that a certain value will make beta be quite far out and another value uh, quite far in. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, anyway, standing waves in what? One of the things that has emerged in the last generation or so is that this, the galaxy and this solar system is permeated with dark matter, uh, which represents 5% of the matter of the universe, 25% uh, of the matter of the universe. We stars and people only represent 4%. Uh, so there's this something else, this big gorilla in a sense. Uh, could it be that there are undulations in this, that the dark matter is not distributed completely uh, evenly, that there are undulations in its distribution where in some areas it's more dense than other areas. And at, in an, in at, and that in normal time scale, it's as if it isn't there. But when you're talking about tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of years, that this tiny, tiny uh, inflection could begin to cause things to assume a regularity that they would not otherwise have. You introduced your friend and colleague, Ren Wexler, who's here. Ren, you've been following this for some time. As you listen to the talk, and as you've heard it, various versions of it before, what does this evoke for you? What, what comes up for you when you uh, contemplate this? Well, one of the things I've, we've, we've talked about this, but, but the phenomenon of the resistance to outsiders, um, which is not just among astronomers. And, and usually the way this works, as we've talked about, is that it's not true, not true, not true, and then it's going to be, yeah, we do that all along. Right. <laughs> and, uh, not true, not true, not true, not significant. Right. We do it all along. And, and, that's, and when that happens, that's one of the great moments. Whoa, how did that happen? Uh, there's, a, there's a quote by Milton, uh, John Milton, where he says, Truth never comes into the world but as a bastard to the ignominy of him who brought her forth. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I actually thought about that, Ren, because um, uh, one of the things that, um, that a number of us have in common, Ivan Illich has this beautiful term, I think it's deinstitutionalized intellectuals, mm -hmm. but basically it's people who are not constrained by some academic system to look at something in a single way. 
And I have many colleagues in the field of integrative medicine and health who are, you know, tenured professors at universities who cannot begin to talk about what they understand of integrative medicine or functional medicine because it would destroy their professional careers. And so that capacity to have freedom to think uh, is, is one of the most precious things that I think all of us who like to think uh, freely have. And to me, this is such an extraordinarily beautiful example of what happens when you are free to think about something without the constraints that an academic uh, system creates. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, as I said, it, the, the remarkable thing about uh, Lineweaver and Beauvaird mm -hmm. is that they are talking about this problem. And in one of the articles that uh, was published uh, a few weeks ago, he said that he, traditionally talking about Bode is, is uh, not done mm -hmm. uh, and that it has this uh, slightly, it's like marrying your cousin, he said. It, it's <laughs> slightly, uh, really? Uh, so people who are advancing in their career, mm -hmm. uh, First of all, they've been conditioned not to think this way mm -hmm. as students, and then when they're trying to make progress in their mm -hmm. career, the last thing they want to do is go into something that has this uh, bad odor about it. And then as they get deeper and deeper into their career, they become more and more committed to a certain way of thinking. And then even if they wanted to, it becomes harder to right. jump track. You really have to be somebody like John Wheeler who had this sort of given his name, this freewheeling uh, ability to sort of skate these fantastic ideas, some of which have turned out to be true, like black holes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was also a very ancient, uh, you know, as above, so below theory. Mm -hmm. And to me, um, I guess I've often wondered, our core assumption that the universe is, is dead and that life is an epiphenomenon is so contrary to the way the universe was seen for millennia, that right. the universe was alive, and that we participated in the universe, right. and that consciousness permeated the universe, you know? And here we discover these new forms of incredible beauty that Newtonian and Einsteinian, you know, theories don't explain, and yet, why would it be that of all the possible uh, uh, systems of, of planetary organization that they would create these beautiful chords that mm -hmm. speak to us at such a profound level. So it just seems to me that it evokes far beyond the, the hypothesis itself a perspective on the universe that goes back to very ancient uh, uh, systems of yeah, thought. True. Yeah. I'd like to open this up for just a few questions. Please keep them very brief. Yes. I was yeah. just wondering if the notes had anything to do with scales, whether they correspond to certain scales. Uh, yeah, the question is, do the notes correspond to certain scales? Because human society is uh, very complex and different cultures have different scales. Uh, it, it does, but it, it corresponds to... Uh, scales that are discovered in nature without any human interaction. If you uh, have an object uh, that resonates, uh, I'm going to say it's a bell, but it could be any natural object, and you hit it, it will resonate with its own standing waves, which correspond to its structure, 
but it will also have overtones, which are multiples of those frequencies, and that's the scale that we're dealing with here, which are simple mathematical uh, extrapolations of uh, dominant notes. It, it, there is very little, this is not the even-tempered uh, scale that we now all use in Western music. It's not the gamelan uh, Indonesian scale. It's the scale of, uh, of birdsong and uh, objects being hit that resonate and have overtones. It, it's the so-called Pythagorean scale. Yes. Two, two questions related. Uh, any school anywhere that's attempting to teach math and astronomy and geometry and music using these related principles? Uh, not that I know of. And, uh, you know, the, the world is a problematical place at the moment uh, and has been for a while. I, th I think if you invited uh, a professor from... Uh, some university back in the 1400s and brought him in today and he looked at education and he said well, well there's your problem you know right there you're not dealing with these core interrelated sub subject which is a little bit what you said that everything is related and to study one thing is to study a limited aspect of the totality, which is just a different way of gaining perspective on the mysterious mm -hmm. thing that we're all trying to understand. And the connected question is, have you communicated with the folks that are in the university to talk about the connection that you see to music, the, the two professors? With, uh... I, I have emailed with them. Uh, I, I made contact with them as soon as I saw this paper come out, and they're, they're very, uh, they respond very quickly, they're very open. Uh, but uh, and I sent them something uh, about the music, but the, you know this is uh, again put them put yourself in their position uh, as professors uh, or graduate students. Uh, it, it's risky enough for them to be talking about Tisch's Bode. The last thing they need uh, is to start talking about the music of the spheres. One more question. Yes. No. I'm curious. Um, I. I think Jack is familiar, too, with the same field of study, complex systems inquiry, and several uh, academic institutions embrace it. So, for example, in New England, near... Are you familiar with complex systems institute, for example, in New England, or the Santa Fe Institute? No. Because they are... They're interested uh -huh. in describing complex systems that are very difficult to describe, with individual equations. Yeah, I mean, so the, the Santa Fe Institute in Arizona is that's that's their subject is complex complexity. Right, but they will they, these these places embrace using um, an observational kind of an equation uh -huh. like what you have, like this yeah. this equation that describes the groups. They're interested in thinking about and and think and examining how they. Right. Um, perform to explain a complex phenomenon that happens in reality. For example, consider how difficult it might be to describe a forest fire with an equation. You know, this leaf blows from this tree to mm -hmm. another tree, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very provocative. Jan? Uh, yeah, just a real short inquiry. Uh, Einstein, uh, the curvature of time and space creating 
contours in the space and time. It seems like is is that have you thought about how that connects to these? Yeah, I mean one one of the forms. one of the handles that I uh, you know when I was uh, when when I would try to think what's going on here. Uh, which I'm not really equipped to do because I'm I'm not a physicist. I'm I'm someone you know looking at these things from a very uh, limited perspective. But uh, uh, is it uh, when we talk about the matrix of space-time? Uh, is there are there minute variations in the so-called density of space-time? I was talking about the density of dark matter having variations, but could there be something in the density of space-time? Uh, there, are, there are some peculiar things, the, the so-called pioneer anomaly, of this, the pioneer spacecraft uh, leaving the solar system. It, it isn't behaving the way it should, and uh, you know, is it subject to one of these analysis? So there, there may be different ways to get at this, uh, but certainly when we're, if what we're talking about is something that only emerges statistically, it, it isn't, as we were saying earlier, it, it, what we're now discovering is that there are not carbon copies of the solar system around uh, every star in the galaxy. It's much more complex than that. Um, and so the reasons why each of these things is the way it is, is obviously complex. It, it's not a, this, we call it, or they used to call it Bode's law, but it's not a law in the sense of Newton's law of gravitation. It's more a statistical kind of law. Um, but as we kind of learn from quantum mechanics, statistics has a way of kind of circling around and, and biting you and being more true than you thought it would be. Walter Murch, you were born in New York in 1943. You settled in Bolinas with Aggie and your family in 1972. You are a great filmmaker, and uh, we are so honored and grateful that you share your thinking about the stars and the nature of life with us. Well, thank you very Come much for inviting thank me. Thank you so sure. much. You've been listening to part three of our three-part series with Walter Murch, hosted by Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. <laughs>